Hello and welcome to this ELO podcast. In this episode, you will hear Bobby Grunewald, pastor of innovation at Life Church, Oklahoma, speak on his faith and business journey and the process that led to developing the YouVersion Bible app. This Q&A is facilitated by Dr. Rick Gosen, Chairman, Advisory Board ELO Group, and Strategic Council for Nicola Wealth. This conversation occurred at the ELO Forum in Toronto on November 18th, 2015. So I'm, uh, my title is pastor and innovation leader at Life Church. We're a multi-site church that's based in Oklahoma City. We have locations in seven different states there in the United States. Um, and uh, my responsibilities are, are broader than just version, but it's something that I started within the church um, back in 2006. So uh, it's been kind of this humbling journey that we've been on where God's sort of done the unexpected, and um, so to, this next week we'll pass, you know, I think it's mentioned earlier, but this next week we'll pass 200 million unique devices that have installed the Bible app. And so if, I, if I can just stop you there. Now, I don't know if, if that number is so big, it almost doesn't register, but when Jeff and I were talking about who could receive the award this year and who's having a massive impact, and Jeff mentioned, yeah, I, I know this guy, Bobby Grunewald, and he says, do you have the version Bible app? I go, well, of course, it's on my phone. And he says, you know that thing's been downloaded? At that point, it was only 180 million times. And you go, 180 million times? If you thought of having a business and putting something online like an app and getting it downloaded likely even 1,000 times, to get anybody even take notice, to get something downloaded 200 million times, um, that's, that's phenomenal. Now, just describe to people your, your position right now. because So there's this version Bible app, but then you're a pastor of innovation. So just describe... What is Life Church, and what what's going on there, and what's the relationship with the YouVersion Bible app? Sure. So, um, our church, um, we're very evangelistic in our approach. The church is just about to turn twenty years old here in January, and um, it's grown from from a handful of people um, to, like was mentioned earlier. Um, over 70,000 people that we'll see come on a weekend um, to our church. So just to clarify, 70,000, that's in person. Right. And over how many campuses and how many services? There's 24 locations. Um, I don't know how many services. I think it, it's something like 140 across those 20. There, there's as many as eight at any given location on, on a weekend. So it doesn't feel, when you come to our church, it doesn't feel like you're coming to a church in a stadium. It feels like you're come into a church of 700 people. Right. And that, that's in Oklahoma and, and the suburbs. Right. So maybe describe how version uh, fits into the life church context. So we talked about, so just to give people a sense as to, you know, what your church is about. And I don't know if anybody's been part of a church that birthed something like a version Bible app. Like, like, I don't know how many of you go to an entrepreneurial church where let's just start something up online, look at how we can have an impact through, you know, media, and, you know, let's have a plan, maybe it'll hit 200 million. Like, like how does that happen out of a church? Well, I mean, our, our, um, you know, our, a church is made up of the people that are part of the church. You know, it's less about the institution, more about the people. And so what we do as a church is really a product of who the people are that come to our church. And I was one of those people that was attending the church. Um, my background is in business and technology, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that some. But, um, but our church, we, we're, because we're so passionate about reaching people, we have this phrase that we'll do anything short of sin. 
to reach people that don't know Christ. And occasionally we might actually cross the line. Um, <clears throat> an effort. I'll, I'll introduce you to the Reinders boys. <laughs> and so, uh, and so what, what that... Oh, sorry, okay, I'll, I'll pick a different family surname. Okay, we're, we're done with the Reinders <laughs> for now, sorry. So what, what that means is that, um, you know, that we take a very entrepreneurial, appro- entrepreneurial approach to how we reach people. And almost all of our leadership are former business people in terms of our backgrounds. We were people that are, whose lives were changed or impacted by the church. And, um, and so we, we transitioned into these roles of leading the church. Um, in fact, our leadership team, our core leadership team, we were all there in the first probably 1,000 people that attended the church. Like the, the, and we've been a leadership team for, for several, oh, 17 years now. Um, but what we, what we feel like, and personally, this has kind of been uh, on my heart, and I shared it with our, our, the rest of our leaders, and we all embrace this concept, is that I believe we're alive at a really unique time in history where if you look at the explosion of the global population and, and look at the time that that's happening, it's almost straight up like a hockey stick during this segment of history that you and I occupy. And it didn't happen any other time in, in human history. And at the exact same moment in time that that's happening, we have this explosion of tools and technologies that have the potential to knit this population together like never before in history. So when we feel called to lead people to Christ, you could look at those, the, 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 you know, the, the alignment of those two things and say that God could have placed us here anywhere on this timeline, but he pl- chose to place us here during this time. And you could say it's a huge responsibility or huge opportunity, but we actually say it's a huge responsibility. We feel like we're compelled to leverage these tools and these technologies to reach people in this time. So as a church, missionally, we feel called to do this um, as part of what we do as a mission of our church. So that's the reason why Uversion, as well as another handful of, of fairly significant technology-related projects are part of what we do as a church. Well, I think one thing that is quite interesting is the fact that business people who attended the church chose the church as the vehicle to pursue these missional purposes with entrepreneurial excellence and with their entrepreneurial gifting. What seems to happen in a lot of churches is, and through the research that Paul Stevens and I have done, it's quite evident that many entrepreneurs feel disconnected from church, disengaged. Uh, they typically pursue their calling primarily through parachurch organizations. So just talk about why all of you didn't just set up a separate parachurch organization, but rather you're actually doing this through a church. And what was the nature of the church that welcomed you to, to do it? Sure. Um, you know, my wife and I, I was in business at the time that I came to the church. Um, we had moved to um, a new house that we'd built in northwest Oklahoma City and and wanted to find a church home that was close to where we were would live. And Life Church was the very first church that we walked in um, and instantly fell in love with, um, just instantly fell in love with what God was doing there. I mean, you could look down the rows at the church, and you could, it's hard to describe, but you could just see life change um, in people. You could visibly just see how God was working um, in the lives of a lot of broken people. And for us, that we just that resonated. We fell in love. We were already believers at that time, but we had never been in a, an environment and a culture that sort of had such a richness of that um, experience. And the church was uh, extremely low tech at that time too. There was no sense of technology. I mean, air conditioning was our best technology, and that barely worked. And so, 
Um, so I wasn't drawn to anything that would resemble kind of some approach to ministry that was high tech. I was drawn to just this passion to reach people and, and drawn to what God was doing there. And that's the same thing that drew the others that are part of our, our team. Um, what's interesting about it, though, is I, see, I had a background in music in high school, and, uh, and I, we got plugged into the church pretty quickly. We joined a small group. The leader of our small group was the worship leader. He found out that I played keyboard, asked if I'd volunteer to play keyboard on the weekend. So I would, did my entrepreneurial business thing with the, with the extreme number of hours and things that, that involved during the week. And on the weekend, I would spend up to um, 12 to 13 hours every Saturday and Sunday volunteering to play keyboard and pre- between practice and playing it. And so here I was every week. I was very connected to the church loved using that gift, um, but not a single time had I ever considered that what I was doing in business had any application to ministry. I kind of viewed the church as something that kind of fed me, and then I would go and, you know, use those lessons and understand my family and business, but I never thought that the technical skills or the learnings in business had application to ministry um, until I sold the company and an article came out in the newspaper about the sale of the company, and it had my picture in the, on the front page of the paper. And the executive pastor at the church says, isn't that the guy that plays keyboard on the worship team? And, uh, and that led to a lunch conversation where he asked me the question. He said, what do you plan on doing next? And I said, I'm probably going to start another company. I'd already done that twice. Um, and I said, I'm not sure exactly what, um, but he, and he goes, Would, have you ever considered coming to work at a church? I was like, no. And then he said, then he, then he changed the question and said, well, would you consider coming to work at a church? And I thought about it for just a second. I said, no. Um, and it had nothing to do with, with money or that, you know, some of the typical reservations that people might have. Um, but I loved my church. And I was afraid that if it became my job, that I might not love it, you know, anymore. And I, I felt like I just, and so, but the point of that, though, is that lunch was the first time I'd ever even connected the dot that what I was doing in business had application even for kingdom-specific goals. Steve, I can just stop there. See, that's such an interesting point because almost all the research that we've done shows that most entrepreneurs are disconnected uh, from churches and actually don't feel welcomed in churches to utilize their market-proven gifts in that context. So the fact, and in fact, when we interview over 300 Christian entrepreneurs, almost all of them will say that it was their friends and family who encouraged them, hardly ever a pastor. So typically, no one from the church recognizes those gifts, and therefore, entrepreneurs find parachurch organizations they start or that they get involved with. So in your case, the fact that the pastor approached you, like, what was his background? Or, or like, when you look back on that experience, yeah. you'll let, because that's quite outside the norm. I'll t- give you some context. So his background was he was an executive at, at, at Target, a re- U.S. retailer. Um, and uh, he left that career to become an executive pastor here at the church when the church was really small. I mean, just fledgling, you know. Um, and is he the founding pastor? No, he- he, he's the executive pastor. He's, he's, so he's like more, he's not the teaching pastor. He wasn't the founding pastor. He came to the church when they had a couple hundred people and he was just attending and the senior pastor, you know, just sought him out and said, I really need somebody around me that thinks uh, in a business-like way that has this experience. But his, his particular experience at Target was hiring. 
and and talent development and and people so so here he was all of a sudden in a position now at the church and that's what led i think to him seeing this seeing the article and saying here's here's yeah. something that could so be. so just to that just to stop you at that juncture so that's quite an interesting concept that you have an executive pastor so separate from the teaching pastor an executive pastor who's a former executive at target right so does that seem common in any anybody's church like i've haven't heard that before that that seems quite uncommon so was it the founding pastor who had the foresight to hire an executive pastor with that business background yeah i mean our our the founding pastor who's still our senior pastor his name's craig rochelle um and he's a really incredible leader i mean he gets a lot of uh accolades for his teaching ability but the the reality of it is it's his leadership ability that's kind of his better strength um and part of that is he has this ability to to do what's not very intuitive for most leaders, and that is to bring people around him that think very differently than he does and really empower them um, in a way that's somewhat unique. So he's not at all challenged by having CEO-type people around him um, in, in positions of leadership where some people would say, no, I, I don't want to have somebody in that type of role um, he's he's not at all sort of threatened by that in any way, and invites a real um, level of discourse and discussion and and feedback. Um, a way we a way we describe it is that he uh, models us because he really delegates authority and not responsibility, and he just sort of says, "I'm going to have people around me where I really I've hired them for who they are and the way they think, even if they think differently than I do, and I'm going to actually empower them with authority to be over this area." Um, not um, simply with responsibility, which is in many ways saying, I want you to do this the way I would do it, but I'm going to give you the responsibility to do it. Um, and so that's an ex- really our culture and who is the church has been shaped by the fact that that's the type of servant leader and the, the type of leader that he is. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the Version Bible app. So describe how the idea first came up and what the, early, what the genesis of it was and, and how it, you know, so those early days... Sure. So um, I'm, I'm the type of person that, uh, one of my strengths is ideation, so I'm full of ideas. Um, but I'm also, one of my other strengths is an activator, so I like to actually do things. I don't like to theorize about things and just think about ideas. And for whatever reason, for me, um, ideas tend to come when I'm in movement, when I'm traveling, when I'm driving, when I'm flying, when I'm, so I don't know why it is that everybody kind of has different places where they're creative. Um, for me, that's the way it works. Um, so I was in the O'Hare Airport in Chicago in October of 2006, and I was in um, probably one of the longest TSA security lines that I've ever been in. It was one of those lines where it, it goes back and forth, back and forth, and then you turn the corner, and then there's a whole other set. You know, like you, you just thought you were at the end, and then it, you're, you're just beginning. Um, and so it was there in that TSA security line that that day, I don't know why, I have no idea what prompted this, but I'm sitting there thinking, um, if we could just leverage the technology that we have today, um, perhaps we could be at one of those pivotal moments in history where it could change not just how this generation engages with the Bible, but maybe generations to come. Not unlike how the printing press um, sort of transformed the last um, several hundred years of our access to Scripture, that, that technology. And I know that's like a really big question to be sitting and asking in a security line, but that's what I was thinking. And, um, and so the initial idea 
was, uh, and that's where, so that's basically where the idea for Uversion came, was there in the security line. Now, most people know Uversion as an app that's on your smartphone or your tablet. Um, probably none of you know that Uversion actually started as a website, but that's actually what the initial idea was. It was a website, and it had some novel concepts and features that I won't take time to talk about, but, but the reason that none of you know that is because when we launched the website in 2007, none of you went to that website. Um, n nobody else did either. Uh, it was pretty much a failure uh, right out of the gate. And the biggest reason it was a failure was that, that I was honestly a below-average Bible reader, um, just personally. I had a desire to engage with Scripture more, but I just couldn't, I could never sort of develop the right rhythm or habit or discipline, whatever you want to call it, um, to do that. And so I was very much kind of creating this concept for me, um, saying, is there a way we could leverage technology that this would work? Well, this website didn't change the way I engaged with Scripture. I would use the website, but only because we created it and I was forced to, um, but not because it was naturally something that helped me. And so, um, so we're not, you know, we're not afraid to try things and then shut them down. Uh, it's just part of the process of, of innovating and part of the process of creating. And so about three months in, after trying a few iterations, uh, small changes to it, recognized that this was not something that had natural momentum and it wasn't really accomplishing what we hoped it would. So in early 2008, I made the decision that we were going to shut it down. And as part of that process, um, I like to really evaluate why something failed. I don't want to just kind of move on, move past it without sort of understanding why. And so we began to process some of the reasons we thought that it failed. And one of the reasons, one of the key reasons, was that we were using our computers less, much less. And so it wasn't natural for us to just simply connect to our computers. But we were using our Blackberries all the time back in 2008. And... And we realized that part of the challenge with why it was unnatural is that we were having to force ourselves to the times that we wanted to use it, we weren't in front of our computer. And so we thought, well, understanding that, why don't we make a small change or significant change, but let's just design it so that it very simply could be displayed on the screen of a BlackBerry. Now, back then, BlackBerries were very simple in terms of their screen. Um, I was a bit skeptical as to whether that would really work because um, the Bible feels like such a big book with lots of words, and the BlackBerry screen doesn't seem like that. Um, but, but we did that, and it just it was amazing. Just very naturally, without having to make a lot of effort to it, I began to more naturally engage with Scripture because it was just a part of this device that had been integrated into my, my life. Um, and our traffic began to go up on the website from people using it on their Blackberries, just started to see growth. It was right at that moment in time that Apple announced that they were going to make it possible for you to develop apps for the iPhone. So some people may not remember, but the iPhone launched, and, um, and for the first year, you just had the set of apps that came with it. You didn't get to download apps. They didn't have an app store the very first year the iPhone launched. And then the, about a year later, they announced we're going to do this update to the software, but we're also going to create this thing called an app store, and we're going to make it possible for people to develop apps. So based on what we saw happen, happening with viewing it on the screen of this BlackBerry, we thought, well, I thought, let's build an app um, for the iPhone. Now, we had no idea how to build an app. Nobody on our team had done that before. 
Um, so I found a 19-year-old on our team who loved Apple, and that was about the only two requirements you had to have back then to build an app, was be 19 years old and love Apple. And, uh, and, and he, of course, is a 50% shareholder. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, no, it uh, didn't, didn't quite work out that way. He's not on our team anymore, but I'll tell you why. So, um, but anyway, he, um, he is a part-time project, um, sat down and we worked to build this Bible app. Uh, and we thought, what if the Bible could be among the very first apps available in the App Store? Perhaps people that weren't even looking for a Bible might see it and be interested in it. Um, and so we submitted it to Apple in June of 2008 and had no idea like how many apps there were going to be, you know, just no, no concept of that. And sure enough, Apple approved it, and it was in the first 200 apps that were available the day that the App Store launched. And so it was, the, it was July of 2008. And that was a Thursday evening. And, um, and we had, as a, as a last minute thing, I was driving down the road, I saw, I shouldn't be doing this, but I was reading an article on my phone as I was driving down the road. Um, there are now laws against this, but back then there weren't. Um, and, and the article was about some company that made it possible for you to get analytics uh, for, for these new iPhone apps. They were a company you could just put their code in your app and it would help you get information back on it. So I ca called the team, and I was like, hey, can we put this code in our app? It was the day before we were submitting it to the App Store. And they said, sure, we can do that. And had we not done that, we wouldn't have known the impact of it because there was no data you get from Apple back then. It was just a you know, black hole. Um, but that was Thursday night, and by Sunday morning, we, because of these analytics, we were able to see that 83,000 people had installed this app on their iPhone just in just three days. And it blew our minds. We had, no, I mean, we had no idea. And not only did they install it, but they were using it. I mean, they were opening the app multiple times a day. And, and the same thing we saw happening on a really small scale with this mobile website for, that we could view on our Blackberries, all of a sudden we were able to see on a much bigger scale happening. And so I'm an activator. So what was a part-time project on Friday for that 19-year-old became his full-time job Monday morning, you know, when he showed up to work because we were like going to, we're going to, we have to accelerate this. And, uh, and so the reason he's not on our team is that I really accelerated it and he didn't really like that. And so that's kind of what happened if I'm being really honest. Um, I was probably drove him a little too hard. Um, <coughs> but, um, but we've now been on this journey, um, uh, for since 2008 till, till today. And it's, and we, race to get it available on every mobile platform, not just the iPhone, it's on Android. It's basically on any smartphone or tablet platform in the world, you can download it. Um, and it's moved from just a handful of versions that we had available to, I think we have over 1,200 versions of the Bible in over 880 languages that have happened all over the course of this journey. So for people who aren't familiar with the Uversion Bible app, maybe just describe what exactly it does, you know, at, in its present form, the number of translations and Bible sure. reading plans. Sure. So... It's an app that's completely free. It's designed um, to help you engage with Scripture daily. That's really the emphasis of the app. Um, so you can do that by reading the Bible in one of those 1,200-plus um, versions in whatever language um, that you might want to read it in. Um, you can also listen to the Bible, read to you via um, audio Bible feature, which I use every day. Um, so it can, it can read to you. You can actually watch Scripture through a few partners that we have that have created video representations of Scripture. Um, you can um, discuss Scripture with a network of friends that you establish within the app. It's, very, it's limited in, in size because we want to be a set of trusted relationships that you have. And you can share Scripture 
um, using social media, SMS, those kinds of things, that happens uh, approximately 300,000 times a day. People are sharing passages on Twitter, Facebook, social media. And one of the features that you just mentioned was there's, there are reading plans daily, like devotional reading plans that always kind of connect you to Scripture each day. And those are very popular. They're growing really rapidly. We have about 1,200 plans in English. They cover a variety of topics. They're anywhere from three or four days long to 365 days long. And, um, and we last year saw about 8 million of those plans completed, like finished all the parts of them. And this year we'll pass 20 million um, plans completed. So the growth rate of that is, is very popular. Now, if you can describe when the Bible app launched, how many Bible translations were part of it, and then how you developed that? Sure. Um, one of the things I did not know when I was in the airport in 2006 was that other people own the Bible. I didn't know that. Um, it's a good thing that I figured that out before we launched it because that wouldn't have been well received. Um, most, some people actually don't know that, but the Bible translation work, uh, particularly in, in English and some of the, the larger languages, um, generally major publishers or some major groups have, have uh, invested in some cases millions of dollars to do the translation work for that, that particular modern translation. And their expectations are that they're going... They, would receive a license or, you know, that they have on the intellectual property rights to it. So, um, so we faced that challenge sort of right, right out of the gate immediately had no relationships, um, directly with any of those publishers or rights holders. And so the first challenge was figuring out, um, one, how to talk to the right people. And then two, how to convince them to let me give their text that they charge for away for free. So that was the second challenge. Um, so when we first started, um, after me um, going and trying to make a case for what we were trying to do, we had one publisher that agreed to license their text to us. It's possible that they weren't really clear on what we were doing and just did it on accident. Um, I don't know. I didn't try to deceive them, that's for sure. But um, I wasn't sure if they understood either because they agreed. Um, and it was, it was one of those things that surprised us in a positive way. And then we had about five texts that were public domain texts that had been out of copyright um, that most people wouldn't want to read, but we had them available um, if they wanted to. And, uh, and so we started with just really one modern Bible text when it began. And then the journey, you know, once you saw the initial results, it was basically how do we, how do we convince everybody else to do this? And, um, and that was one of the bigger challenges, you know, of, of the whole thing. Just give the example of the King James Version, because I think that's, uh, that's uh, quite interesting. Uh, as far as what? Well, remember the copyright in yeah. King James. So, well, I mean, in the United States, you know, the King James Version, people would say, well, that's a public domain version. Only later did I come to understand, because I've been corrected by some of our British friends, that it's actually under crown copyright, which means that the, I guess, the the Queen of England or something maintains this copyright in, 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 perpetuity. in, in perpetuity for all the Commonwealth. Um, so we're not in the Commonwealth, so I think that <laughs> helped us or whatever. But we, in deference to that, we actually list it as uh, under crown copyright in our, uh, in our app. So. Right. so I'm getting lots of good questions. So uh, one question I was leading up to, and a number of people have asked this. Of course, the obvious question is, well, it's free. So, you're, so 200 million people are using it, but presumably you're not making money from them. So can you talk about... How who fund who funds who funds it and who owns it and then the relation and one person asked and the relationship with the church just to clarify, sure. So um, 
Uversion is actually a part of our church. It's not a separate entity. It's not a separate um, nonprofit. Uh, it's it's just a part of our church. So our staff that are part of Uversion are focused on our part of our church staff. Um, but most people don't know that because we don't ever use the app as a way to promote our church. Um, it's just to get people engaged in scripture. It's not a tool that's designed to, to kind of grow the church in any way, or our, our particular church. Um, it's funded, initially it was funded entirely by our church. So it's just a part of our budget, and we allocated at the very beginning a very small amount of funds to, to fund it. And then as it grew, we allocated more. Um, and then some Christian business leaders came to me that I knew and said, is there any way that we could help accelerate the growth of this? And I said, sure. Um, and, um, you know, I have experience with business, so I put together a bit of a plan of how we could accelerate growth if we had more resource and, uh, and present it to them. And, and then they've uh, funded a portion of our budget ever since then. So I don't have anybody that does donor development or... Um, spends any time raising money, but we have uh, the church today that gives a significant amount um, annually that's part of our budget, and then we have outside donors that fund the rest of it. And I've designed it so that um, if all the outside funding went away one day for whatever reason, that we can more than sustain the operations of it with just the church, the portion that we're doing there. So the rest of it's all really fuel on the fire. It's more about growth and acceleration. So how many employees do you have? Right now, we think we have about 29 full-time employees, and we have about 400 volunteers because we provide um, the app in 45 different languages. We provide the Bible text in 880-plus languages. We provide tech support in a dozen languages. And when we can, if you receive an email from us in English, it's likely that people have received that email in, in 15 or 16 other languages. So we have volunteers that manage this whole translation process and tech support in Chinese and in French and German and all these different languages. But so with 200 million downloads, you've got 29 staff, 29 full-time Correct. staff, and then 400 volunteers. And these are primarily through the church, and they just pitch in? The volunteers are actually primarily through the app, not through the church. So it's just people that are using the app that are bilingual in a particular language want to help provide support in Chinese or whatever the language is. Um, and so we, uh, there are some volunteers that are from our church, but the primary number of our volunteers come from the app, as well as most of our developers and our 29 staff came from, they were users of the app and they've, um, you know, left whatever job they were doing before. Um, some worked on the space station actually, um, and doing development and they now, um, wanted to work on something bigger than space. So they came to work on the Bible. <laughs> and then what do you see as the future of the, the Bible app? So would you see it evolving to a standalone entity? Would you see uh, monetizing it in some manner? Um, no to both of those questions. I mean, the, the first one, standalone entity, if we ever felt like that was a, a barrier to it being successful at engaging people with Scripture, then sure, we'd be, we, would, we would do that and without any question. Um, but it really hasn't proven to be an issue, and there's so much I could go into about w how it benefits by being a part of the church in terms of our team and, and, um, and how God's used it. Um, and then in terms of monetizing it, you know, we've, uh, there's really a bit of background to it, but as a church, um, we felt back in 2006, uh, sort of the same time frame, but we felt like called as leaders to 
give all of our intellectual property away for free to other churches and other ministries for them to use, removing our name from it, no attribution required. And so we've been resourcing pastors and church leaders this way for uh, almost 10 years. And we as a, that's changed our heart around generosity. And, um, and we really feel like that's something that we, um, we want to do with the Bible app as well and have been committed to. So, you know, the Bible publishers and those groups are really the heroes of the story. I kind of set it up like that was the tension point early on that was tough to work through. But, but to their credit, you know, they really as a whole entire industry have embraced this, this concept uh, of the app and uh, are, are big supporters and big partners of us today. And part of that commitment on our part is that we're, we're basically non-commercial. They bought into what, what, what we're doing. And so I think doing that would be a big shift that probably wouldn't be well-received and, and being consistent with what, we've, what we sold as a vision. So we've got about five minutes left and continue to text questions. I've gotten a number of them and I've woven them into the conversation here. But in the last five minutes, what lessons could you share? Uh, first off, in terms of what you've learned by being a business person working successfully with a church because a lot of business people don't always work successfully with churches so so what's what are some lessons you've learned through this whole process um well i've learned lots of lessons i'm trying to think of in particular how to put it in context to your question um i mean i i learned i think the biggest thing i learned early on was that um you know, God gave me a lot of unique experiences in business, uh, things that as a very young business leader, 20 to 24 years old, I had this, uh, these uh, just very unique um, experiences. And we had a company, multinational company that birthed out of our dorm room. And we had, um, you know, sales to public companies. And I mean, we had just lots of transactions and things that were going on. And um, what I learned from all that, we had bad experiences as well. Um, had to ask all my team to work without pay for a month while we went out and raised more cash and, and lots of challenging times. But I've learned that God doesn't waste any of those if you just let him use you and, and are kind of obedient to his direction for your life. Um, he kind of takes every last little piece of these experiences and finds some way to kind of weave them uh, into your plan, his plan for your life. Um, my particular calling, and I didn't, I resisted it at first. I didn't tell kind of the rest of how I got on staff, but my particular calling was clear that God was leading me from this position in business into this vocational role at the church. I know that's not everyone's calling, and I don't actually think it's necessary. There's nothing about that that is more correct than that. It's really being true to kind of what God's calling you to directly. But I, I wish in retrospect that I would have even connected these dots earlier that the things I was doing in business could have kingdom impact because I could just as very well have stayed in business as an entrepreneur and made an impact, kingdom impact through some of the, the specific skill sets and things that I was developing there without necessarily being on staff at a church. That just happens to be my particular path and my particular calling. And so I would encourage people to to recognize that God's given a unique set of experiences, resources, not just financial resources, but resources in, in terms of the position of influence and, um, and relationships that you have. And if you'll sincerely ask God to reveal how you can use those for kingdom purposes, um, I'm confident he'll blow your mind with what could be done. Just to emphasize one point, 
all of us, of course, have a calling as business people to use our skills in the marketplace. Now, from your standpoint, given what's happened with the Bible app, the number of downloads, all these great experiences, what have you learned about calling, given what your concept of calling might have been 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and then with what's happened now? So when you sort of look back and reflect on all these experiences, what's been the number one lesson you've learned about how God has worked in your life? Um, for, for me, uh, I think the lesson I've learned is it's a, it's a step-by-step process. Um, in that if I would have known what God was going to do um, and what God is doing today, if I would have known that back when I was a finance major in college, I would have messed it all up. Um, because, you know, to give you a little more context, I mean, I, I had a Christian rap ministry when I was in high school. So I was a rapper. I don't look like a rapper, but I was a rapper. Um, and, um, and I went to the Christian university, but the, antici- the expectation of me going to that university was that I was likely going to be a religion major and become a pastor. But when I got to school, I felt very distinctly that God was calling me to be a business major. And it was a difficult decision, not because God was calling me to it, but it was difficult because there's a set of expectations that others had that I was going to do something different. And the perception by those people, the great, great people, but was that taking a step towards business would likely, it's like stepping away from your calling. But I knew in the moment that this is what God was calling me to. And then step by step, if I trace it back, every part of this journey has been just trying to listen for God's voice when you're at these points of decision. And, and so it's been a process of step by step. If I would known where I was today, I probably would have become a religion major thinking that's what I needed to do to take this path and there's nothing wrong with being a religion major but that but the the path that god had for me is what created this unique set of experiences to allow me to do what i do today and uh and so i think i would encourage people to think about calling in a way that sort of appreciates the process and recognizes that sometimes god just reveals this in a very step-by-step fashion without the sort of clarity of what the destination is um and being comfortable with that process because i think it it um it's how God, sort of, it, it, for me at least, it's sort of the only way that I think it would have been able to get there. I would have messed it all up. I'm confident I would have. I would want to cut straight to the end, and, and that wouldn't have been the right, right journey. That's great. Do you have any, just as a final question, do you have any final comment you'd like to leave with us? You know, this is a room of 275 uh, business people, leaders and companies. Any, any word that you'd want to share with, share with everyone? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I, uh, a passage in scripture that um, I, strikes me as just something that I feel like typifies what I believe God's been doing in, in my life and is Ephesians 3, um, verses 20 and 21, where my, my uh, really bad paraphrase of it is that God's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And he chooses, he doesn't have to do it this way, but he chooses to do it through his power that's at work within us in whatever context that he's placed us in. But he doesn't do it so that we can receive the glory. He does it so that he can receive the glory. So he does it through us so that he can be seen. Um, and, and I think that is an example of what I've seen God do in my life. And I would just encourage you guys in the significant spheres of influence of where God's placed you 
to, to recognize that he's able to do far more than you ever would think would be possible. You probably have a limited view on what God could do through you. In fact, I'm confident you do. Um, but he's only going to do that if you let him work through you and not so that you can be glorified, but so that he can. Um, I, when I tell the story about what God's done through you version and, and, and the, really, the numbers don't really kind of capture the, the story very effectively. It just kind of gives you a little bit of a, a snapshot, but it's sort of surreal in some ways. Um, I, I like to highlight for people that this is a church in Oklahoma which is not known as a hotbed for technology. Um, and, and God used a church in Oklahoma to create a, a technology solution to help people engage in Scripture that's reaching people in all parts of the world. Every single country on, uh, and, and territory on the planet has used it. Um, and I believe that was with intention and with purpose because if it happened in Silicon Valley... People said, well, that, that kind of makes sense. Those ex-Google guys, you know, they kind of started this Bible thing, and lots of people use it. Or if it would have happened in New York at a publisher, you know, that had, whatever, tens of millions of dollars that they invested in a Bible app, and everybody said, well, that makes sense. They, they're kind of in that space. But God chose to use a church in Oklahoma to do it for only one reason, and that's that there's no way we can take credit because there's absolutely no way that it makes any logical sense that as smart as our team is, and they're really smart people, they're not that good. You know, they're really not. And, um, and so it allows us to tell the story in a way that makes God kind of the center of what happened and not, not our bright ideas and not our, our smart entrepreneurial thinking. Um, he uses all those things, but it was clearly him you know, that did it. So, so I would just say the same thing holds true. If you just allow God to use you in that way, whatever your context is, I, I'm sure that he'll... Um, surprise you with what's possible. Great. Can we thank Bobby? Thanks for listening to the CLO podcast. You can subscribe to the Entrepreneurial Leaders Monthly Newsletter to stay informed of new ELO resources and upcoming events. You'll find the link in the show notes.